Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware & Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady, we're sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is, should I form a B corporation? Sometimes also known, maybe more often known as a benefit corporation. And um, um, this topic is triggered, I think, simply because I find myself hearing about B Corps or Benefit Corps with increasing frequency. To be perfectly candid, I had never heard of one until about, I'm going to say, four or five years ago um, when I was retained to perform uh, an appraisal of one that was um, a startup uh, software company. And uh, that's the first time that I had, that I had encountered it. And, you know, it was, it was, it was novel. It was, it was interesting. Anytime you get a chance to do an assignment, you learn something new as the provider. Um, you know, that, that's always a good thing. And, you know, I sort of filed it away. And, you know, in the last few years, I hear B corporations being mentioned more frequently. They're talked about more often. I think, I think, frankly, as more, of the younger generation, whether it's millennials or generation Y or Z, or I guess double A comes after that if you're thinking Excel spreadsheets. But, you know, uh, as, as more um, uh, companies and company founders, I think, kind of reject the Friedman kind of notion where uh, building shareholder value holds primacy above all other objectives. And, and we're seeing the pendulum kind of swing back to a stakeholder point of view um, that B corporations have, have become increasingly important. And I suppose it's on my brain now because um, I'm trying to remember if they have been um, uh, authorized in Georgia very recently or they're on the verge of being authorized. And our guests will correct me there. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of spacing out on it. Um, but we're about to be one of the states that allow this. And the majority of U.S. states allow them now, but not every, not every single one. And, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of neat. And depending on what your desire is for a company you already have, company you're going to found, you know, it, it, this may be the first time you're hearing about a B Corp. Or maybe it's the, maybe you've heard about it before, but you never really took the time to, um, uh, to sit and research it. So this is your opportunity while you're driving or jogging or, or cooking or building birdhouses out of wood or tinkering with your car or replacing a graphics card in your computer, whatever it is you're doing while you're listening to a podcast, you know, here's an opportunity to kind of learn um, something more about it. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because uh, 
and this is the accounting geek in me, although I, I've, I've repeatedly protested many times, I'm not actually an accountant. Um, and it's instantly malpractice for me to call myself one, but, um, you really don't hear of like a new kind of company, I'm sorry, corporation or corporate form being created, right? You, you just assume that there's a, there are S corps, there are C corps, there are limited liability companies, partnerships, sole proprietorships, et cetera. And they've been around forever. And that number kind of isn't static. It's kind of like talking about adding a new state. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. Where are they going to put the extra star? Um, uh, 51 is a hard number um, to divide well because um, it's a prime number, but um, not prime number, but it's a, it's a weird number. Um, and, and so when a new kind of corporate form comes along, you, you kind of perk your ears up and say, oh, okay, well, here's something that's, that's going to be a little bit different, a little bit out of the ordinary, a, a little bit novel. So I have told you now the sum total of my knowledge. I have literally spewed it out onto the internet in podcast form uh, in terms of my some knowledge of a B corporation. So uh, as we do on the Decision Vision podcast, uh, I'm inviting an expert on it. And joining us today is my friend, Juliana Neil Bauer, who is a senior associate at Drew Eckel Farnham, a law firm here in Atlanta. Drew Eckel and Farnham is a full service law firm that offers deep litigation experience, strategic corporate and transactional counsel, and practical legal advice to companies, individuals, and families. Juliana focuses her practice on virtual general counsel for for-profit, nonprofit, charitable, trade organizations, high net worth individuals and families which hail from the consumer technology, commercial technology, healthcare, industrial slash supply chain, finance, government contracting, charitable and political action industries. Prior to joining Juracle, Juliana was the chief operating officer of Ad Hoc LLC, a fast growth federal prime contracting company that builds custom web portals to deliver government services more efficiently to millions of Americans by using agile software development and other modern web development methods. Juliana oversaw the scaling of Ad Hoc from a nine-person small business to a 90-employee mid-market prime contractor with a 10 times increase in revenue within a 14-month period. And and the cool thing about getting to do these podcasts, I've known Juliana for a couple of years. I did not know that about her. I knew about Ad Hoc. I did not know that she led that kind of growth. So um, that's awesome. In the academic realm, Juliana has organized a legal clinic program for hacker participants of the University of Maryland's BitCamp. Georgia Tech's Hack GT, and University of Maryland's all-female Technica Hackathon events. She served for half of a decade as the attorney advisor to the executive board and entrepreneurs of the student-governed startup shell incubator of the University of Maryland campus, and as a business mentor and lecturer for the M-Tech program in the Clark School of Engineering, and for fearless founders classes at the Dingman Center for Entrepreneurship in the Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. Juliana is a Penn undergraduate interviewer for the North Atlanta region and a past board member of the Penn Club of District of Columbia. Juliana, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Mike. It is good to have you. And it's weird that we're not eating biscuits this time. I think that's when we first met, you, we, we got biscuits. And so that felt like the right thing to do when we were outside of Atlanta at the time. Well, I, it, it, it was. And one of the reasons that I took an instant liking to you as well. So, um, so, so, so thank you for that. And I don't say that about many people. I normally take an instant dislike. So, um, that's, that's, you're on the, you're on the narrow side of the ledger there. Um, we'll see if we don't switch that before the end of the podcast, Mike. Well, <laughs> hopefully we won't. 
<laughs> right, right back at you. We'll, we'll, we'll see if we're still Facebook friends at the end of this, but, um, um, let, let's start off very basic. Um, what is a B corporation? Sure. So B corporation, as you pointed to at the beginning is a new corporate form or a business entity, business organizational form. And what does that mean? Um, well, most on the most basic level as a business owner, you have a choice of what kind of entity you want to form its, its legal form, and then also what kind of tax treatment you want your entity to have. And the reason why you might form it is um, just because you, you didn't even mean to, but you just started get engaging in business activity. And by doing so in certain states, that automatically makes a business arise around you and with you, whether it be a sole proprietorship that you never register anywhere or a, a general partnership or a partnership with you and somebody else. And then some of us choose to actually register those things. And when you do, you have, as you mentioned, all of these choices, right? You have your, your corporations, which can be C corporations or um, S corporations for tax purposes. That's a tax status, actually more than a legal status. And then your LLCs, your limited liability corps, your various forms of limited partnerships, your general partnerships, and then your nonprofit. And, um, and so those are the most common forms. Now there's a new kid on the block and it's these B Corps or B LLCs or PBCs. And we can talk a little bit more about the differences if it would be of interest to your listeners. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it would be. So we'll, we'll put a pin on that and come back to it. Um, so, um, can you sharpen my knowledge? I know there's something going on with B corporations in Georgia. Are they just about to be authorized? Have they been authorized? Where, where are we in our state for that? Your 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 instincts are right. We have passed the, both the the House and the Senate in Georgia and the General Assembly have passed a, a benefits corporate corporation law, which is Georgia House Bill 230. You can look it up online. It's available, and you can see the full text if you Google for the General Assembly site. And then the governor is in a period of review. And until August 5th, he may veto this bill, even though it was passed. And uh, and we don't expect that to happen, but Governor Kemp has done some things that have surprised business in the past. And so we'll see what happens. But the outlook and the prognosis from all of the policy wonks here is that he's either going to let it lie, which will make it automatically pass at the end of August 5th, or he will actively sign it in to put his signature on it and show that level of executive support politically for it. And one thing to note is that Georgia's law is not that is not really controversial within the B Corp community. Um, there is an, a, almost a trade, or a, some folks call it the uh, the benefit uh, economy um, of businesses that are already engaging in this type of business. And so, as each state decides whether it's going to adopt one of these laws and is often being heavily lobbied to do so, um, they, you know, they can add their own elements into each of these state laws. They can be a little bit different the way the corporate forms work, but Georgia's is pretty vanilla. So when we talk about what Georgia has passed in this podcast, um, it will apply to most of the other states that you would look at and, and sort of shop when you're thinking about where you might want to form one of these. So, how long have these B corporations been around? As we, we talked about, not too long, but how long have been, they been around? And do you happen to know kind of what state authorized them first? Ooh, I knew you were going to ask me that. And then I, I wasn't 100% sure that I, I could tell you which state for sure. But I know that Delaware was one of the first. Okay. Um, as 
normally the case uh, when you are uh, trying to create something new in the corporate legal sphere. It's smart as a trade group to target Delaware because uh, the Delaware court system is uh, older than our country when it comes to corporate the corporate law that has been established there. And so, in fact, this is one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons why shareholders, um, investors, and major businesses register in Delaware. It's, it's not as many uh, new folks getting into business believe because the taxes are better. In fact, taxes, the tax rates are often worse when you're starting out in Delaware. They, there are tax advantages that you can capture once you've gotten bigger, and especially as you go public. Um, but when you're a private business starting out, it's actually the, the uh, corporate tax rates and some of the filing fees are much higher than other states. And so that's not why you pick it, Delaware. You pick Delaware because it's an old court system. And when you're in business, you like things that are old uh, in the legal realm because then they're predictable. And uncertainty is your enemy, right? Uncertainty means you have to spend more money to prepare for more contingencies. And that's expensive when you could instead know the future, know how the courts are going to rule and either settle more disputes outside of having to go to court or um, know exactly how much it's going to cost you if you do. So um, so you want to target Delaware, and that's what we have here. So the Public Benefit Court Law in Delaware, or PBC form, um, has been established and has been around, gosh, I, I think, for at least maybe over 10 years for sure. Um, and the real movement and the push to make uh, this a, a nationwide opportunity where um, there was active lobbying in all state legislatures in order to, and organized lobbying to make public benefit corps or really just B corps, uh, which is sort of the, the, the more common name for them now, um, to, to be pushed through started in 2006 when one organization, a trade group called B Labs was formed by three founders. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that it's Jay Cohen Gilbert, Bart Houlihan, and Andrew Kasoy. And for those who are from the startup community, whether it be fashion or retail or traditional technology startups, um, you might recognize their names. They are the founders of And One, which was a very popular uh, retailer that sold uh, athletic wear, including uh, shoes. And they had a very successful, growing, fast growth company that unfortunately for them, once they got some additional funding in one of their rounds, they gave up control of their company and their uh, director, who was then made chairman, had so much power that he had a differing opinion than they did as far as how they should operate their company and made some decisions that they felt were not in the, the best interest of society at large and the environment and that they felt would actually hurt marketing for their company and therefore hurt their bottom line. And putting all those three things together, once that company was sold at a price and at a stage that they felt was too early and too, too low, uh, they were really passionate, even though they had they had some capital. So they said, well, let's actually fix this problem for the future. Let's create a legal shelter under which uh, founders can let investors know and also um, legally be allowed to make decisions that aren't just increase shareholder value, that don't just go to Milton Friedman's shareholder primacy uh, philosophy and have the legal cover to do so. So, um, you know, and, and, and there's been some pretty good, pretty significant uptake on this. Um, I think, I think one of the more 
famous early B corporations was also Ben and Jerry's, Ben and Jerry ice cream. Um, yes. and, and, you know, they would not consent to be acquired unless they were acquired by some entity that was going to continue to pursue a, uh, a social mission. Um, because that was always a big part of, uh, a big part of their culture. Right. And, and I think that acquisition kind of led to, kind of legitimizing, if you will, for lack of a better term, legitimizing the, uh, the, the B corporation. And, and now if, if, if I, uh, if I remember correctly, I read in a Forbes article recently that there's, there's over 2000 of these B corporations around at least. Correct. And those are just the one, well, there's more than 550,000 that are certified by B labs and they are again, a trade group, but also a certifying organization. And so I, you know what I should say, I believe that they have certified that more than 50,000 organizations are meeting the standards of what a B Corp would be required to do um, if they were a mission-driven or a uh, purpose-driven organization. Now, I do not know if all of those are, in fact, registered as B Corps, now that I think about it. Um, That might have been a nuance in their marketing that I would want to see. But to your point, there are thousands of these around the country now. More than 35 states once Georgia uh, passes its law, which we expect to happen again on August 5th, have these laws on, on the books so that you can form these. And so more and more of them are, are being formed every every day. In my practice, I, I would say about maybe 30% of the clients who contact me to form a new business in the last year have asked me about B Corps and Benefit Corps and Public Benefit Corps and asked me, is there a benefit? to me doing this for my business. And so we've walked through that analysis quite a bit in the last 30%. Year. That's, that's a much bigger number than I would have expected. Yeah. And that might be my target audience, which is a lot of technology companies. It's a lot of second time entrepreneurs as well. So they've had a nice exit and now they really want to do the company. They want to operate it in the right way, you know, fix all the problems from their last company, even if it was successful. And then they also want to, um, have the company be more purpose-driven because now they can do what they really always wanted to do, not just what they thought they economically needed to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it sure does. Um, It's it's that give back mode that a lot of tech entrepreneurs kind of enter once they've had that, that big exit. Um, Right. So why, you know, there's already a, a nonprofit corporate structure out there. Why is a B corporation needed? Why is there room for the B corporation to exist when a nonprofit organization exists or maybe a for-profit, but has a specific mission, right? Take Newman's own where they've been very, um, they've been very open that basically their profits or most of them go to various charities. I think mostly for sustainability. Um, Right. Why, why was the B, why was the, the, the development of a B corporation needed or welcomed when, when you sort of have a nonprofit structure already already available? Yeah, this is a great question. I think there's actually two different answers. And so I'm, I'm going to try to wear both of my business side hats and my, my law hat. On the legal side, there's a need for it because on the nonprofit side, you, know, you, you, you have a mission. It is defined. It, it must be defined in your charter. It is also something that you calculate against when you file your quarterly and annual tax returns to the IRS and then also to your state. And so 
Um, it's very important that you are working within your mission. In fact, it can affect whether you maintain your nonprofit status or you don't. If you are not meeting certain thresholds as far as how much of your activity is falling within the parameters of your mission activity versus activity that's outside of your mission. And that can include both spending and also uh, taking in of income. And so that's a very rigid structure. And that's very, can be uh, hazardous if you are a new organization and you're not sure what that balance between your activities that you have to engage in in order to keep your lights on, right, to bring in income into the organization, um, whether th- that is going to be sufficient on the mission side in order to keep your lights on, whether you're going to have enough donations when you're a new organization, you're unknown, versus um, activities that you know you can immediately generate revenue, but that might not qualify under the IRS tax, the IRC, for um, for being within a mission. So, for instance, the, one of the quintessential ways that this trips up nonprofits is selling T-shirts or merchandise. Um, very often, you, you can't actually include merchandise sales for T-shirts or mugs within your mission, even if you just, you know, put your logo on there and you do it for a fundraiser. There's very specific rules for how you can do that and get away with that and not be subject to having reclassifying of that that income when you go through an audit. And so that rigidity puts off a lot of organizations, a lot of founders, especially those who are maybe even sophisticated in business, but not, not sophisticated in law or taxes tax law in particular, and they, they, they avoid the nonprofit form for that reason, but, or it just doesn't work for the scale phase of their organization. And so in that scale phase, they opt in for an LLC or a C Corp, which allows them to go after whatever revenue generation they can, helps them scale their organization. And then down the road, maybe they spin out, um, they form a separate nonprofit and fund that nonprofit with proceeds from their personal funds from the business and they, you know, their compensation or through marketing activities of the business or what have you. But it's sort of a, uh, and it's imperfect. And there's a friction there for those founders who, who have said, I want to be more true to what this organization is really about. I want to be more honest with my shareholders and my investors. Uh, you know, I want to be able to be as honest as I can without creating liability for myself by saying, I want to spend 30% of the revenue that comes in the door or at least of the net, you know, the profit that comes in the door on social good activities, environmental activities, or um, I want to be able to opt overtly for the vendors that cost more in the supply chain, but that do better work that don't use sweatshop labor for, you know, the sewing of the garments that we produce or what have you. And so in those cases um, there was actual legal liability that could arise not only if you mismanage your nonprofit and lose your status because you're not perfectly meeting these requirements while you're trying to keep your organization alive, but then on the business side, if you have a for-profit business, you know there there are, there's a famous case where Henry Ford, um, after Ford Motor Company was wildly successful and he's invested a lot in the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan, and while he was helming his organization, one point he started to give out you know double-digit. Um, percent of the net profit to these really truly charitable aims throughout the, the city and his shareholders filed suit against him and said you're not following the Milton Friedman you know you're the uh, course and of course that he, Milton Friedman was later later but you're not increasing the value of the company with these actions 
you are, you knowingly are spending money where dollar for dollar, there is no chance that this is going to increase the value of, of the shares of Ford Motor Company. And so he said, I'm a brilliant man who's changed the face of, of <laughs> the industrial economy in the United States. I've created one of the most successful automotive companies in history. I get to do this. I am Ford Motor Company. Come on, courts. I'm, you know, I'm going to win this case. So he fought back. He didn't settle, took it to the courts, and he lost. And the court said, if you want to engage in charitable activity, form a nonprofit. And then we have the Ford Foundation as a result of that. So, you know, cases like that are, and that's probably the most famous one where we talk about uh, the responsibility of shareholders to increase their shareholder value. But um, it's a real risk. It's a, it's a way to pierce the protection you, as a director or officer of a company, have when you create your business entity and you register it and you get this corporate shield that protects you individually, you know, and in your bylaws and in your operating agreement, if it's written at all competently, it will say in one of the last clauses in there that the company agrees to protect you and indemnify you for the base, effectively making a bad call or having bad judgment in business, which in hindsight is very clear. But the problem is, um, if you do things that are overtly uh, against creating additional shareholder value, or that are, um, there's no, there's really no justification you can make, other than I just did this for the good of the community, not for the good of the company, that can pierce your protection within your organization. It can pierce those those protections of the company. And so if you look at those clauses, it'll talk about willful and wanton um, and negligence and willful and wanton activity where you purposefully do something that is not in the best interest of increasing the value of your company. Boy, now you can be sued individually uh, by your own company or by individual shareholders and have these derivative suits pop up. And so it's a real risk on the legal side to take a significant portion of your business activity, of your time, of your your team's time and energy to engage in activities that don't increase revenue, don't increase profit. So um, that, that that that's that's good. That 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 really lays out lays out the case. <clears throat> I'm familiar somewhat with the Ford history. Um, you know, ultimately, he was also deposed because he was declared insane. And I have to wonder with that story <laughs> that you just shared. I did not know that background. I wonder if part of the reason his family tried to declare him insane is because he was spending money on that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. But um, so, so, so I, I think you've done a, Frank, a, a really good job of explaining kind of the gap that a B corporation fills. Is it harder or easier to set up a B corp versus other more conventional or more, I guess, just longstanding corporate forms? I would say on the spectrum between setting up an LLC, which is probably the easiest form to set up. I mean, there's a, there's websites that will set this up for you, right? For you know, a couple hundred dollars and you just click a few buttons and they'll just, they'll, they'll register it for you and they'll create your corporate um, entity governance documents as well as make the filings all the way to the, I would say nonprofits or certain kind of exotic um, holding companies that might be offshore where you have a lot, you're going to have an accountant and a lawyer and maybe multiple <laughs> involved with uh, setting up the initial company, um, that B Corps would fall somewhere in the middle, but probably closer to the LLC. It's really not 
that difficult to set them up. The reason why you will want to talk to an accountant or better a lawyer who's done one of these before or has been very familiar with the statute of the estate in which you're going to register it is because they're new, quite frankly. And there are a few clauses that you do need to put in your articles of incorporation or certificate of incorporation, which is the, the, the formal attestation that you're going to file, the form that you're going to file with the state that you choose. And they're not vanilla. They're not the normal ones. It's not the, the template that you're going to find online. Um, some states have automated registration now for business filings, which is amazing and wonderful and democratizes the ability for people to create businesses, which I think is all a good thing. I would rather do less work myself as a lawyer on the front end of filling out rote forms and do more advising and have you spend your dollars and your time talking to lawyers to, to get real time and advice. Um, and so anything that makes that easier for you to do that, you know, it doesn't require a ton of brain power from a lawyer or an accountant is good, but I don't know if all of those forms are updated to include those extra clauses that you really do want to include when you register a benefit corp, a benefit LLC, a public benefit corporation, whatever the designation is for that state. I hope that they would, um, there's also some, in addition to what you, the minimum you'd have to have in there, which is an extra clause talking about the mission. What is that social good, environmental good, public good mission that your organization is going to be evaluated against as, as whether or not it is on mission and it is acting within um, its requirements to be in the public benefit? You do need a clause for that, for sure. And I would imagine that they would include that. But in addition, you're going to potentially want to add in your articles of incorporation, a few extra statements to narrow the scope of responsibility of the directors and officers um, in this time where these are new. It is a little bit unclear how you're going to balance um, shareholder value with the best interests of those materially affected by the corporation's conduct, right? And and then also kind of a, as a third category, the public benefit. Those are three different things. And so, you know, that is one of the risks legally and also on a business level for anyone who is going to form one of these or going to operate or govern one of these is making sure that you have set in writing how you plan to balance these three things. And in some cases, being more general could benefit you based on the type of business you're engaged in. In some cases, being very specific is going to benefit you because you're going to have a lot of um professional investors who are going to absolutely hold your feet to the fire about this and not be day-to-day involved in your business and be understanding if at the end of the quarter or the year you haven't met what they consider success against that mission. So let's, let's talk about that because I I think the, um, I think that notion of the mission, I mean, it certainly sounds important intuitively. It's important. I, I imagine you cannot simply write a clause or be hard to write a clause in your uh, in your organizational documents to say, hey, we're going to be a nice company and we're going to do good social things full stop. I imagine you probably have to have some pretty specific language that that um, that defines kind of what that that social or maybe not social. That sounds kind of polarizing, but your, what your non-business mission is. Right. Well, let's. I think to answer your question and we can actually look directly at the new Georgia statute, right? So let's use that as a template here. 
in Georgia now. Once August 5th passes and presuming Governor Kemp does nothing or signs this into law, either way, it becomes an effective form that you can file. Um, you have to you have to create a more objective standard for what your mission is and what success against that mission is than just generally saying we're going to do good for the world or we're going to do good for nature, right? You have to no less than annually give to your shareholders um, and any other person who requested in writing a written report talking about your performance as a corporation with respect to the public benefit or benefits that you included in your articles of incorporation. And by the way, your articles of incorporation are a publicly filed document. So they can be audited by anybody. Um, And this sounds like, the statute sounds like truly anybody could have standing to say, I don't think you're meeting your mission. I don't think you're performing um, sufficiently or or have you even created this report? Are you in violation of the law? And if you haven't been creating these annually, then right there, you have a ding. You could potentially lose the right to have your corporate form. And that creates, most importantly, liability for you with your shareholders so they could have derivative suits against you for mismanagement of the organization. Um, and then with, within the report, well, what is what is, has to be in there? Georgia actually tells you you have to create specific objectives for the board of directors in, con- in connection with that pursuit of the mission. Um, it has to be those. There have to be standards that are defined, with that are measurable, that the board has adopted, uh, that that show that the com- company is either progressing or not progressing uh, positively in pursuit of those benefit or benefits. And then you have to provide some factual information that that can be used to. Uh, flesh out those standards. And so it can't just be a report with a bunch of, with a spreadsheet with uh, calculations that are not explained with effectively, you know, history and facts of specific events that have occurred that support that the numbers are in fact tied to activities that occurred in the real world and had real effect. And so um, that alone right there is a pretty heavy burden administratively compared to not having to do any of that. <laughs> you have a oh, program. yeah. And, and it, 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 I mean, that, that's, really, that's really interesting. So I want to I kind of put the brakes here and really dive into that because I think that is so important. Um, and, and I did not know that walking in, but, um, uh, you know, on the finance side where I live, we have GAP, mm-hmm. right? We have generally accepted accounting principles that, right. are, you know, effectively is a common language that we pretty much all agree on in our society, at least in the financial world where, um, you know, a dollar in revenue equals a dollar in revenue, profit equals profit, et cetera, et cetera. And we have a set of professional standards and even licensing for people that, that are experts in presenting to an external audience, um, uh, what the financial position and results have been for a company at a given point of time and over a given point in time and commenting basically as to whether or not the financial statements can be, can be relied upon. Now we're adding this new benefit statement for lack of a better term. Maybe there's a term of art of which I'm unaware. Right. And, and, and um, as you say, anybody can kind of make an objection and say, Hey, I don't think you're, 
I don't think that you're you're doing this and it, you're doing this right. And it sounds like the burden of proof is on the company to prove Correct. that it's meeting its objective, which is that's extraordinary. There's very few areas of law, correct me if I'm wrong, that put the burden of, of proof on the defendant effectively. Well, let's talk about that. So I want to say kind of, right? I said yes, but let's say kind of because, okay. you know, you, you're, what does this burden of proof mean? Like I, what I've described so far is these factors, these elements that you have to meet. That's about as detailed as the statute gets. And that was a pretty general, those are general statements, right? And so, yes, you have to show, you have a burden to show that you've, in fact, gone through these steps and have some activity that shows that you have created objectives that are, you've created uh, objective factors and metrics and standards of what you're going to be graded against and that they're going to be something that can, numbers can be applied to. And that, in fact, certain factual information responsive to those standards now I'm quoting the statute, factual information responsive to those standards regarding your success or failure in meeting those objectives has occurred. But beyond that, that's all the statute really says, right? I mean, so, well, I shouldn't say that. It just says a little bit more, but it, it's pretty general. And so there's a lot of what's maybe more interesting to you is not um, that the burden of proof is shifted. You have to show that you've taken these steps, right? And that you've done these things. What's actually interesting is that you suddenly have a new kind of accounting standard for this activity, right? In the sense that it, I think it's very likely that until the accounting community kind of jumps in on this and says, here's what um, meeting these requirements looks like from an accounting perspective, and we're going to standardize this, it will be non-standard. There will be a lot of different ways that organizations define their standards, define their objectives, and then define success. And like, how are the numbers going to define success. And so there will be a wide variance of what quote unquote is compliant. And so I say kind of because just by showing you've made that attempt to comply and you have, you know, checked off these sort of general boxes, you may in fact be in compliance initially until the accounting community just kind of defines what the best, what, what a standard really is and says it isn't a standard unless you're meeting this standard, right? The kind of expanded gap for, for this. And then the last part of this is you have to self-assess in theory. You have to, in Georgia, you have to, as an organization, assess the benefit corp's success or failure in meeting the objectives and accomplishing the goals based upon the factual information, right, the standards applied to the standards and the objectives. And so um, the real swirl that I'm seeing is it says an assessment. It doesn't say by whom. So in in theory, you can self-assess. But it's risky legally to self-assess because we are in this gray area of what really is compliant. And until a court says you can't do something, it sounds like you can, but who wants to go to court and be the first company to be told by a judge, well, actually, that's the limit. You went too far. You're the one that's now going to get your hand slapped and snapped in the cookie jar lid, right? Yes. Um, no that's having a case named after you is like having a disease named after you. You never want that to happen. You know, it's not a good look for anybody, and it's certainly not great for marketing. I mean, there's no way you can spin this as a good thing. So, um, well, I guess, you know, somebody couldn't say, well, we're, we've now learned our lesson and we want to do it right. and sh- We want to lead the way for doing it right. But but, um, but the Georgia statute, you know, it's clear in that there's these four prongs, right? You have to set object, have real objectives, 
not just a, a manby-pamby statement of emission. You have to have actual standards that can be quantified. And then you have to qu- apply actual factual information to those to those standards. And then you have to assess at the end of the year whether you've succeeded or failed. Okay, great. But what does that really mean? So to your point, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty squishy. It's pretty squishy. So, I mean, are there standards being built up? Is there something akin to a gap for B Corps so you can have some sort of objective or at least generally accepted measurement stick? Is there an industry of experts or are CPA firms being asked to step into this role? How is that, how is that shaking out right now? Yeah. So yes, is the short answer. And so let's flesh that out. Um, The, the, the power of a trade organization like B labs, which kind of is, I, I would say like the leader out there right now is the most popular one. Um, by far, and it's really the one that's put the dollars and the time in to, to lobby to get these uh, state-level B-corporation uh, statutes passed and to really make the movement happen within the business community. It, it, their power is, is really great right now, right? Because they are defining what these terms are going to be, what these prongs are going to be for, for, for you to operate properly. And then at the back end, they do certification. They, and so when you hit the, the section that says you have to do an assessment, and then what does that mean? You go into a subsection of, this, of the statute and it says, well, you got to make your, it's best if you make your report uh, more frequently than annually, maybe quarterly. It's, it, you really should be making it available to the public. Um, you should use some kind of third-party standard in connection with measuring your how, where are you going to get that? You're, you're, I mean, going to your question, how do I protect myself and make sure I'm doing this in a way that I can justify? Is there anybody else doing it? Can I analogize to something else? Well, they are providing all these templates to their members for um, how to do this. They're assessing you. And then they're also providing you templates for mission statements, for protocols, for um, creating standards. And so you're, you know, they have a lot of uh, authority and control. And then in addition um, they're um, getting either amendments to existing laws to make them in line with their standards that they provide, and then also getting in states like Georgia, they're they're lobbying to get these new laws passed. So this this segues then segues really very nicely into this notion of uh, B Corp certification, because as I was preparing for this um, uh, this conversation, uh, I, I learned that there are. It looks like there is a cottage industry of B Corp certification. I suppose B Labs is 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 kind of a leader and a vanguard for that. So, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like that's what the that's what the role of this of a certification process is. I guess now I, I'd understood that to be to kind of bless a B corporation at the outset, saying, "Okay, you, you've got the right things." But do they also do they also then perform a, a kind of audit or investigation or some kind of attestation to the effect that the company is continuing to meet its B corporation obligations. Yeah. So every year, typically you would have to, under like the B lab model, you're having to provide them effectively the same kind of information that you would be providing to a state entity typically, like, or like the IRS, if you're a nonprofit. And so you would provide them with those reports if you, you know, want to get recertified and then they maintain your certification. 
And so, yeah, it, it, it's almost as if they have privatized the regulator. And the idea is that's a good thing for you because they want you to get certified. Everyone's incentive is to make sure that you get certified and that you're doing this the right way so that as a whole, they're creating this benefit economy and that you're all going to be able to participate in it and then have the on the back end, the membership has its privileges, right? You get access to all of these other benefit organizations that ideally can make up a supply chain that is very efficient for you and potentially helps you remain compliant because you know your vendors are also compliant. And so you don't have to audit them yourself. Now, let's say that that I'm, uh, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, wow, you know, you're sort of hitting yourself in the head saying, you know, I could have had a V8, but instead of V8, you say I could have had a B Corp. Can and are you familiar with or aware of scenarios where companies have converted from some other corporate form into a B corporation? Or is that something that that that's sort of exceedingly hard to do? I have not personally converted an existing corporation into a benefit corporation. Um, when that has been discussed, in the past with a client or a potential client, typically it it was easier in those specific situations to just create a new entity. Um, But there's not, in most states that I have looked at, there's not anything that would block you from doing that, just like you could convert an LLC into a a C corporation in, in most states or even between states and maintain the same IRS um, EIN number. So effectively, you don't have to always close one entity, pay back all of your investors, their investments, and then, or, you know, pay out to your investors what, what the value of the company, split everything up, divide up the horses and the mules, and then reform something, which is two tax events, right? No one ever really wants to do that if you don't have to. Um, there are ways to convert. And so, um, and there's nothing in the Georgia statute that I've seen that would block that. In fact, they have a clause or two that talk about how, how what the voting uh, minimums would be amongst your shareholders if they were going to take all of the existing stock in an existing organization and have it um, purchased by a B Corp or convert into a B Corp stock. And so they, I think they're planning for many organizations wanting to convert in Georgia from their LLC form or their corporate form. Um, let me switch gears here. And I, th- I think you're, you're really well qualified to answer this because it, it sounds like you do a lot of advisory work on the front end of these things. What are some, what are some scenarios when maybe you talk somebody out of a B corporation, right? What, what, what are some triggers or characteristics of a company or a founder or something else around the company structure that says, you know, um, appreciate you asking, but a B corporation probably isn't the way that I would suggest that you go. What, what, what do some of those things kind of look like? Sure. I'd say anytime that you're in an industry that's already heavily regulated, often by more than one body or by a state level and then a federal level body, Um, and that can turn your lights off with an injunction or an administrative action without you having your day in court. Um, That type of entity, that kind of organization in that kind of industry is one where often it's not such a great idea because what you're going to have is potentially a conflict between the responsibilities to your mission in some cases and 
maybe a regulation that you didn't even realize had been amended or or changed or an opinion that had come out from the regulating body that now makes your existing uh, benefit corp mission activity um, in violation of your other industry regulation requirements. And so things where you're, you know, there's a lot of entities that are in the healthcare sphere are interested in this because from a marketing perspective, it sounds great, right? We want to let everyone in the world know that, you know, we're not a nonprofit, but we have a lot of the benefits of a nonprofit and that we can act in accordance with a greater mission than just profit. But um, depending upon what part of the healthcare or medical device or medical services, medical research um, industries you're in, it might not be a great idea. Um, it might be better to, again, either create a separate nonprofit that can engage in the activities that you want to be able to then show the community, hey, we're taking a percentage of of revenue and we have approval through other means from our board to have that go towards a nonprofit that's going to take care of those activities, right? And so um, that's a typical one. Another one is if you are in a let's say, a, a, a business where you know you have to do very fast growth, you're going to have to get outside capital. It's going to have to come from an investor community that is either deeply unsophisticated but very conservative and not aware of these types of entities already and not understanding how they function and how that can affect their investment, um, the, the value of their investment, you know, the multiples on their investment over time. Or if you're going after investors who are professional investors in uh, VC funds, fund managers, right, who have a lot of LPs that they're responsible to. But again, it's in a very conservative industry where um, there's there's plentiful other investment targets that are in your same space that don't have the same structure. Anything in that case where you're not the vanilla option, you're not the option that um, just fits their standard rubric of what of what they're looking for might mean that you don't get the meeting or that you do a pitch and you never get a call back or an email back. And so in those cases where it's very competitive, you have a conservative investor pool that, you know, that it's so hard to get the meeting in the first place to then spend half yeah. of your 10 minute pitch time educating your investor community about yeah. what your form is, boy, that can be really inefficient when you really just want to talk every second about how you're going to change the world and make them tons of money while you do it um, through your business model. Um, I'm going to ask you an unfair question. And if it is unfair, just tell me um, nobody's going to hold you accountable for it, but I'm curious, have, have you ever looked into or Have you ever heard of any studies that talk about whether or not B corporations actually tend to perform relatively well compared to their counterparts. I, I read studies from time to time that talk about companies with double and triple bottom lines that that, right, that right. seem to do pretty well. And I'm curious if you're aware of, of, of kind of any learned information as to whether or not B corporations tend to enjoy some kind of performance advantage or not. Right. No, well, Mike, you know, I, my undergraduate majors were science degrees. So I'm a Set, I'm a numbers person. I'm a research-oriented person. And so this question doesn't bother me at all. Um, I, you know, my, myself am very interested to see what the trends are with real numbers behind them on these organizations and whether this really is just a marketing opportunity as much as anything else or 
if there really are multiple fires that can happen here as a result of choosing this specific form. And I have not seen a study that I felt was statistically significant. Um, I've seen white papers that replicate or, or, or try to appear like they are scientific studies, but they are, I would say, still in the marketing realm and they're anecdotal as far as the, the sample sizes that they're looking at. And so I think it's early days. You know, this form has been around since 2006. We've had corporations in the United States um, that have been legally recognized since the 1600s. And of course, this these corporate corporate form goes back to the uh, merry old England, you know, even further. And uh, LLCs have been around since mid-century of the 1900s. So, you know, they've just these this, these are the new kids on the block. They are so new that I don't know that we're going to have trend information that is really anything that you could rely upon for a while. I would say we got to almost give it 40 years minimum before we know whether that's just an overall economic trend versus some kind of benefit that this form has. That's, that's me. Maybe I'm a little bit too um, scientifically oriented in that way. And as far as wanting to have a big enough sample size, but I will tell you that I'm seeing objective shifts that could in fact create opportunities for these entities that other entities can't capture. And anytime that you make a choice on a business level, it gives you an advantage and puts you in a smaller competitor pool. That's a good thing, right? That that can only benefit you statistically over time if you have your other fundamentals of your business operation in order. And so, for example, there are grants that traditionally were only available to nonprofit organizations that now there is movement to open those up to benefit corps and to benefit LLCs. By definition, if you're in a benefit LLC or benefit corp and everyone else in your industry is for profit and they can't access that capital and it's, you know, a low cost type of capital to get a grant versus having to give out the very expensive over time, um, you know, buying capital with your equity or, you know, paying interest on capital that you get from other financial institutions, boy, that's a real advantage. And I would expect that if that trend uh, matures, where more grant organizations consider these almost like quasi nonprofits and, and allow them to compete for grants and major grants, um, then we will start to see that there's an advantage in that realm for sure. And then in addition, you know, B Labs and others are not only trying to create the trade group to conglomerate and standardize what these organizations are, how they operate, how they evaluate success and performance, but they're also trying to conglomerate investor pools that are only willing to invest in these entities. And so if they are successful, then again, you've got a cartel. The moment you have a cartel, others can't compete to get into that realm. Now there's a whole uh, tranche of capital out there that you can only access if you're a benefit corp, if you're a BLC. Boy, that should give you some kind of advantage over time if, um, if, if again, your fundamentals of your business are proper, if you're market fit is proper if your ability to execute is 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 real well i'm planning on being around 40 years from now so we can check in on it because i'm still waiting for my ticket to mars so um (laughs) well well, i'll tell you what we will circle back in 40 years we'll have another podcast and assuming i have any marbles left at all we will come back and check and see how b corps did (laughs) sounds great we'll do it from mars how about that 
We'll do it. We'll do it from Mars. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll have to be, there'll be too much delay in, in the interview. So uh, Juliana, <laughs> this has been great. And, and thank you for coming on. We're, for those of you who are, are listening, we're, uh, we're doing sort of a, a late night recording here. This is, this is late night with decision vision. And mm-hmm. um, uh, so thanks for, for staying on and staying up so we could uh, get you on here. This has been fantastic. I, I have learned a ton about B corporations that I, that I, I didn't know and probably should have before I valued them, but that's neither here nor there. If somebody wants to ask you, you know, questions we didn't cover, um, would you be willing to, to take a question and how best, uh, how can they best contact you? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm happy to answer questions about these. And if I don't know the answer already, you know, I will track it down. I'm happy to do that. It's, you know, education for your listeners is education for me too. Um, I've heard a lot of a mixed bag of questions, so hopefully I can answer most of them. The way to reach me is through my email address, which I think is going to be made available through this podcast, but also I'm online almost everywhere. Because yep, it'll be on the, my, the website for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Neil Bauer um, and at Neil Bauer Law. I think I have both of them on Twitter, two accounts. I'm on Facebook. I'm accessible via Messenger. I'm on every major messaging app, you know, that you can imagine because a lot of my clients are on all major apps. So, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn as well. And the law firm is in these places as well. So if you can't remember my name, but you remember Drew Echo and Farnham, either one is a great way to reach me. Do you have a TikTok account? I do have a TikTok account. Have I posted anything? Absolutely not. And I have <laughs> removed the app from my mobile devices, even though I still have an account out in the ether, because the terms of service are ridiculous. And it is a backdoor for you have given up so much of your data rights when you join that thing. And then it's extremely hackable, I think, by design. It's almost as bad as Facebook Messenger as far as the data rights you give up. But I think they're they're neck and neck for, for being the most atrocious on online that I've seen. All right. We will wrap that up there. A little bit of free information about TikTok, although I am disappointed I'm not going to get to see you post on it. But um, I, I would like to thank Juliana Neal Bauer so much for joining us and sharing her expertise with us today. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Brady Wear and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.